I'm Gemma Godfrey. And I'm Phoebe Kaufman. And this is Money Can't Buy You Class, a searing podcast about the ever-interesting Real Housewives franchise. And uh, today we have our first guest ever, which is very exciting, Alex Weinstock, who's here to really get into it. Um, Alex is a self-described someone with lots of opinions on reality TV and its place within contemporary culture and is so excited to finally be given an outlet to express them. So it's very exciting. <laughs> that really that really sums me up pretty perfectly, I think. Yeah, it, it, it sums us all up. I mean, that's truly, it's, it's a good self-description, I would say. It's very succinct. I feel the same way about myself too. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. Um, so today we're gonna talk about uh, like probably one of the most important moments in Housewives and probably TV history, which is the Scary Island episode of Real Housewives of New York where Kelly Ben Simone famously loses her shit. I, I just have to say that this was, in the history of reality TV, I can think of, you know, only one other episode in the Real Housewives franchise, which really comes close to the level of importance. Uh-huh. Um, and that would be the dinner party at Camille Grammer's house in Beverly Hills, season <laughs> one, um, which, you know, depending on how this goes, we can get into another time. But I think that given the sort of, you know, lasting repercussions of this episode, it's almost <laughs> more important. Literally it did last, like like Kelly Benson is now, like can't find any work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she was like fired from all of her already fake writing gigs at like party reporting for like Us Weekly. Yeah. Um, she, you know, just, yeah. Which is also really sad because this is clearly somebody who had, you know, a mental breakdown and was having serious mental health issues. Yeah. Um, and we laugh about it. <laughs> well, I mean, mental health issues can sometimes be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> they can't, you know, my mental health issues are definitely manifest themselves in very funny ways occasionally. If somebody edited like together, you know, anybody's breakdown, like it would be, I mean, it's, they they got us. They entertained us real good. Yeah. I also I also don't I, I think if I think, you know, you have to have a certain level of craziness to be entertaining because otherwise you were just so yeah. fucking boring and we wouldn't be doing the podcast <laughs> if any of us were boring. No. Um but yeah, so the so this is season three of Real Housewives of New York, which I think is a really iconic season. And before we even get into that, um, Alex made some really, maybe Alex, you can talk about this. You made some really good points about like, like what, uh, like what was happening like outside of the TV show, like what it was like 2009, 2010. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, I remember watching this when it came out um, and, you know, obviously it was, you know, Life-changing is an understatement in this instance. Um, but, you know, in, in sort of revisiting it in the past couple of days and looking back on it, you know, I, I think a lot about where the world was, where, I mean, I was, um, I guess the world, but specifically aired. I mean, this was, like you said, 2009, early 2010, you know, we were in the midst of the worst financial crisis in our lifetimes. Bush had just left office and Obama came in and, you know, there's the sense of hope. There was also the sense of sort of, you know, disaster. 
um, because the world was in utter chaos. You know, we were in this war in Iraq. I, I mean, let's not, we're not gonna dive into politics at this time, but it sort of, you know, at the time, the show really felt like an escape, you know, mm-hmm. a way to get out of this horror um, that was our everyday lives and sort of, you know, dive into this world of yachts and townhouses and private jets and, you know, to sort of take a break from reality. Uh, and, you know, I think that we were able to invest so much of ourselves in these characters and in their relationships. Um, and I think, you know, in, in the context of, you know, the show, this going into this trip, you, you have to take into account the sort of tenuous relationship between the characters in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Jill and Luann are noticeably absent. You know, Jill will make an appearance as we, as oh we know. Um, <laughs> Jill Zarin. Um, but just that you have this, you know, Kelly is very much a fish out of water in this group of women um and props to her for being brave enough to go on that trip honestly you know I always think about what it would be like to go on one of those trips I'm like it sounds horrible (laughs) like you're literally going on a trip knowing somebody's gonna get in a huge fight publicly or not publicly Uh, something that something that just came up is uh Chris Krause has this incredible quote um in Summer of Hate where she goes, um, it occurred to her, her like main character, that the epistemological groundwork for the war in Iraq had been laid by Paris Hilton's sex video. <laughs> Have you guys seen Paris Hilton's sex video? No. I think when I was attempting to be straight, I watched it as porn <laughs> and it like did nothing for me. <laughs> yeah, I feel, yeah, I feel like even for the straights it does. <laughs> for the straights and the lesbians it doesn't do anything sexually for anyone but um one of the most incredible parts is the the guy i think he uh he starts like talking like monologuing about their sexual exchange in front of this huge american flag like you know how in photoshop you can like like not photoshop in a photo booth you could like uh uh like green screen kind of like image in the background like that's what it is and he's just like (laughs) Like I spent one night in Paris and like, this was my night in Paris. And he's like, obviously trying to do something with like the Paris and American flag. And I don't know. She's my kind old... of, uh, what? Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say Paris Hilton in a certain way is the, is the Helen of Troy of our era. And the Paris has been uh, re, re-gendered. <laughs> anyway, you know, Paris, Paris, but um, anyway. Yeah, Kelly, Kelly, Kelly's name is not Paris, and Kelly has made it very clear that she is anti-sex. Yes, she's very, her, also, I just want to say that, like, you know, her body is, like, it's scary, she's so ripped, it's terrifying. Like, it's part of what makes it so uncanny, the whole scene, like, it just, like, like her body feels so out of place kind of among those women. Like she doesn't look like she has such like a mod, like an athletic body. And they're also like in a fit, but like no big boobs and stuff. Like she really is like very rigid and like the way she acts, like I can't stand her. I was watching it today and I was like, I cannot stand this woman. 
Well, I've, you know, I've been thinking, you know, I, I, I also listen to another podcast called Maintenance Phase, which I love. And it's kind of all about the sort of, you know, it's about anti-fat bias, but for me, it's, you know, I, I really think it sort of helps me contextualize the way we approach bodies and the kind of mindset that goes along with a certain body and sort of, you know, definitely there are people who are genetically blessed and look a certain way, but when you are that focused on your fitness, um, there is also, I think, a sense of, you know, um, there's a, there's a, an, an OCD, an obsessive compulsive nature to working out and to, you know, achieving this look and this, um, this image. And I think the idea of abstaining from sex almost goes along with that, you know, wanting to be a sex object, but not wanting to be seen sexually. Yeah. Right. And so I thought that, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. She is very anti, she is very anti-sex and she calls Bethany a hoe bag in this episode. <laughs> it's incredible insult to her. <laughs> like, but I'm, the vocab is like, who, whoever has said that ever in their life. But it's become part of the, you know, cultural sense. I mean, I say that now as, a, as an insult. <laughs> yeah. You say uh -huh. it, when's the last time you called someone a hoback as an insult? I mean, it, it's been at least a year since I haven't seen anybody over there, but I can tell you, um, you know, probably within six months prior to that. I also think that um, the episode, like season three is so weird and iconic because it's like, like Alex's character, like Alex and Simon are like, just so weird. And like their presence on the show is really, like hard to deal with and like I feel like the scary island thing was a like a bit of like a perfect storm of like like the, just the the crew that was there and like the Alex stuff and like and like the Bethany like I just feel like they all had a really that, that was when it was like so crazy like the fights were really, really really intense and I think that um yeah I just feel like that's part of like what made scary island like a thing was this kind of like strange energy that they all had together because they were all kind of really there was like there was true weirdos in Kelly and Alex on the show I mean I also I'm so glad you brought up Simon um because I think that looking back on it there wasn't we weren't really talk. I mean maybe this is just my experience we weren't really talking about homosexuality in reality TV in the same way that we are now. Mm -hmm. And he was so, so blatantly gay, yeah. you know, and they would go on these trips together where he would just treat her like a mannequin, you know, and like put different clothes on her. And mind you, they were all hideous. I've never seen people with worse taste in clothes, but no. you know, it was this, you know, I think, and, you know, we were jumping a little ahead here, but, you know, when we look at the photo shoot on the beach and Kelly accuses Alex of channeling a vampire. And the devil. Um, and the devil and Kabuki. Um, <laughs> I do think that she is kind of, she feels almost like a, she feels very empty in the sense that she feels like she is just trying to, she will sort of absorb her surroundings and try and, I do think channel, <laughs> guess channel them outwards. I mean, she has this, yeah. you know, she sort of, she sort of epitomizes what that show is about, just aspiring to this level of wealth that is, you know, 
really unattainable for most people um, right. and really kind of fictionalized because, mm-hmm. you know, these people don't actually live like this. It's crazy you say that, though, because I've, I've never, see, I've never thought about it in terms of Scary Island, um, in terms of agreeing with Kelly. Because, you know what I mean? Because, like, mm-hmm. Kelly's whole accusation is, like, Alex, like, you know, like, Kel- Kelly, I guess you could even describe it as, like, uh, like Gemma and I were talking about, like, medieval mystics and how they were, like, they had, like, moments of crazed revelation. Like, you can even kind of call it that with Kelly. And she's, like, Alex, you're channeling the devil because you're empty inside and you're full of anxiety and you have no, you, no idea what you're doing in life. And I think that I always interpret that as like, as like, as like more Freudian, like I'm kind of like, that's like Kelly's projection. You know, I'm like, I think that Kelly actually feels like she's channeling the devil. Like I think Kelly feels possessed and I think that Kelly's really miserable in her life, but you're saying that you, you agree with her. And you, you agree with what Kelly's saying socially about the group. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really conscious of this coming into it that I really didn't want it to be, I really didn't want to come off as a bashing Kelly because, you know, there, you know, obviously there is some craziness there, but this is also reality TV and it's also edited to, you know, really dramatize. I don't know how much you could dramatize what actually happened because it, seems like it was pretty insane um but you know it, it it's very easy to label or complete total crazy rather than actually looking at a larger picture of where she might be coming into this and where she actually may have some points you know i don't want to be labeled as a kelly benson on defender because you know i will you know without you know without hesitation say i'm team bethany and i always have been um but i think it's really important to just i i really want to make sure that i I'm giving sir, her some humanity because she, she, you know, she's clearly struggling and, you know, she, I, I, her, some of her feelings are likely very valid. Like we say, you know, she is a fish out of water here. She is, she, I'm sure she feels whether, um, whether it is just her, you know, imagining it or not that she's being ganged up on by this group of women who are very much aligned against her. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I like what you said about like revelation, Phoebe, and like, cause, cause I always thought like, like I do think that like the way the way that she was it was almost it was kind of almost like she was like speaking in tongues like she's saying such insane combinations of words and like but also like the way that she the way that she like you know says that to Alex like I mean Alex is pretty scary like she kind of is channeling the devil and like Bethany I think is that manipulative of a person that like she or like is that intense and like is that aggressive that like Kelly was able to have like a dream that she was like murdering her. Like, like clearly that like that dream comes from somewhere. And I, I think that like, I do think that she kind of did see it did it, it, some, it did seem like somehow she was like kind of, I don't know, like maybe she did sense that like there was, she just was reacting badly to the group. Like she just couldn't handle it. And like Bethany has an interview after the Scary Island and she's like, Kelly's not built for reality TV, which like Phoebe, oh, you mentioned. Yeah. In psychical preparation for today, for this episode, I, I actually had a crazy dream last night um, about you, Gemma, um, and Ava, the incredible, brilliant Ava Anderson, who's also very beautiful, who's our producer. <laughs> um, shout out to Ava, uh, producer of the pod. I had a dream 
that we were searching for an afterlife. Um, and it took us years and years and you and Ava were more serious about it than I was. And they kept having to like, like figure out the reality of like social cues or like the reality, um, uh, uh, like, like life was full of like hidden keys and we needed to figure them out. But then we finally came to like the last thing and we had to dive, we had to free dive into this pool of water in the middle of like a Nordstrom. Um, and we got to the bottom and we opened up like this crypt at the bottom of this weird hole and it was nothing. And we were all like, like death is, death is final. There's no, there's nothing after it's, it's just death. And then Ava was like, the craziest thing was I recorded all of this and I, I missed the second season, but I have, I've won three and four. Wow. That's very, that's a pretty crazy dream. I think you could argue that um, I'm honored to be a part of part of that dream, but I think you could argue about that, that like the portal into Scary Island when with is the bag, the Bethany bag at the beginning of the episode when Kelly sees it and literally jumps away from the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think you could argue there's sort of Kelly has this sort of fear of death and that, you know, I mean, also, we didn't mention this in the beginning, but I mean, Bethany is coming into this having just lost her father. Yeah. And part of what I just- And pregnant. Be, and she's also pregnant. And she's also pregnant, right. you know? And that, oh, that's an amazing point. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, you have these two polar opposites, the beginning and the end of life. And, you know, uh, par part of what I found the most kind of disturbing about this whole episode was um, the way that Kelly is attacking Bethany and the sort of emotional state that Bethany must be in at this point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I didn't really think about it until Phoebe brought it up, but I mean, that it could, I could very well see, you know, sort of subconsciously Kelly feeling very fearful of this idea of death encroaching on this, you know, very, this, you know, bucolic um, paradise, this boat that they're right. on. Well, and I mean, she she is really upset that Bethany's dad just died and that she's there. Like, she's very consumed by that. And like, she can't just let that be a thing. Like, she, I think that's, I think that's, that's like evidence for what you're saying that like, she doesn't like that there's like a presence of, of death, like near, near them or whatever. And, and I also think that Kelly is, she cannot like, she can't keep anything in her body. Like, it's like, every every word has to come out it all has to like go really fast and like when she like has a com the complaint pad for the women she's like every time you have a complaint you write it down and then in, in her interview she's like and then you crumple it up and you throw it in the garbage like no one needs to talk about it like and she's so she's so bossy and like controlling about like not wanting to feel things and it's like i you know it's like i've never seen that like i've never seen that in a person before but like the way that she like is she can't, like, it's like, it's like she can't hear certain things. She's like, no, no, no. Like she like refuses to engage with it. But at the same time, like then engages with it and then like flips it around in her head and like projects all of her shit onto everything. Yeah, something I know, something I noticed about Kelly and um, is that she, she kind of has this issue or just not even an issue, it's just a pattern with her is that she like, she takes everything literally. Yeah. And you could even like, you could even like have it with like a body, you know what I mean? She's like, she is like the literal definition of being in shape is to have like all your muscles out all the time. 
You know what I mean? That's like literally what it means to be in shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has that, like her first little thing with Bethany is when Beth, she, you know, Ramona's like, why don't I have my Pinot? And Bethany's like, haha, there's some grapes in the fridge. We can just stomp on them. And Kelly's like, don't stomp on them. I mean, <laughs> eat them. You can't talk about wasting food like that. Are you psychotic? Like, are you crazy? And, and it's just like, she doesn't understand the joke and that even that, you know, that keeps happening. And she, um, it's even with the, with, with the dream she has, she like has this dream and she takes it literally. You know yeah. what I mean? She's like, my dreamt that Bethany is going to kill me. Like you literally are going to kill me. And I think that that's like, that's this issue. It's like this, uh, like you were Alex, you were also talking about like the notion of the uncanny Valley. And I think that like part of like the, like what, like of, of the uncanniness or like part, part of that whole, like, uh, um, I don't know, like technological dissonance or whatever is like taking reality too seriously. You know, it's like when the, it, it, like the computer tries so hard to be human that it's eerily off. You know what I mean? And I think that Kelly is kind of like that in a certain way where she takes everything at face value. So there begins to be like an eerie, like dissonance split between reality and, um, and her interpretation of it. Well, I also think I want to, I want to say like too, like the literal thing, like the, one of the tenets of this episode is the chef v cook debate and she right. like like that is like she has a thing about language like she has a thing I think I guess she does take everything literally but like she has a real thing with like with language like she uses the wrong word for stuff like like crazy but it's not like a Ramona way it's like I was reading a quote from her and she's like in the lexicon of my life like it doesn't make any sense like but she just like ha- she just like it's like she's full of words and they just like come out of her but like Lemon into lemonade <laughs> but like the chef v cook thing is like pretty it's like pretty obsessive <laughs> no i mean i to me that sort of speaks more to the idea of her having this like ocd where she is like a dog yeah. with a bone and she can't let these things go yeah she definitely strikes. yeah she definitely strikes yeah it's it's like she can't deal with it unless like um it gets resolved like until it, she like throws the piece of paper away like she was saying with the complaint that like she can't it can't be out of her life until she throws it away. Like, but um, yeah, like, but like when I was like doing research, I was like researching like, you know, press and stuff about like all the interviews and gossip about it. And like, all of them are like, like a lot of them are based on the quotes that she says because like her, her language makes so little sense. Um, which is like, I think like just telling that that's like the episode is kind of about like, just like these crazy kind of moments of like this like it like this this language issue like these these kind of weird slippages like in these random things that happen and like yeah it's really chaotic (laughs) I mean I'm I'm I love the um the uncanny valley part of it I mean for me it's sort of I was looking at it in like a bit of a different context I mean I sort of you know I've always thought that there's, you know, the great scenes in reality TV, you know, exist in this sort of part of the uncanny valley that's never really talked about, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, I mean, when you think about the uncanny valley, you, need, you think about this curve and reality TV really exists on the precipice of that sort of first, you know, where you are just at the point of it being, you know, too close for comfort, but, you know, you still enjoy it. Um, but rather than something like the Polar Express, 
um, which sort of, you know, I don't know if we remember, was like famously people hated it because the animation was so lifelike. Oh, um, reality TV almost takes a jump over this abyss in instances like Scary Island. And we find ourselves in this strange place where, you know, we know we're still watching this sort of quote unquote reality TV, which is fictionalized, but we can tell that the kind of control that should, that should be surrounding it, it's sort of been breached. You know, mm -hmm. there isn't this same control. And, you know, there it, it's really brief that these things happen. Um, but it's just this sense of, you know, exhilaration that you are sort of getting a peek behind the curtains into, I would say, yeah. it's it's not real, it's not reality, it's not fiction. It's this sort of subliminal space that exists between the two. And my feeling is that the reason we, you know, enjoy that so much is because it sort of speaks to, our, you know, subconscious schadenfreude, um, the sort of desire to sort of see others in pain. And, you know, we, we can enjoy the reality TV show because we know that it's fake. And yeah. we can tell ourselves that I'm enjoying this because it's fake, you know, but our sort of what really gets to us is when it, it's not fake and then we still enjoy it, you know, and it becomes right. so important. And so, right. you know, like we said, it's, it's part of our, you know, it's part of our cultural language at this point. Yeah. Well, I also think like the um, the thing about this episode that like makes it for me feels like even it launches it even more into that weird, like uncanny space is that like a lot of times on Housewives and reality TV shows, you have people performing like craziness or performing like anger, like to really like, you know, give us a show. And the thing is that's weird about Scary Island, I think is that like, you kind of can't, at first you're like, is she just like being like, you know, she just like kind of doing this for the cameras. And I feel like the women can't tell at first, like the women, like they're like, they're like kind of, you know, trying to like, like they're like being mean to her and like kind of fighting her. And then like they pause and they're like, wait a minute, this is not like, this is not really the show apparatus happening. Like there's something genuinely happening to this woman that's like, she's not really in reality. So like, that's a really weird thing. Cause it's like, it's like a genuine moment of like a breakdown. And like, that is like jarring because you're not actually used to seeing that. And like, and it is scary. <laughs> like, it's like, you're like, it feels like you shouldn't be like, it's like how to, it's like, I can't imagine the producers when they were on that being like, oh my God, like we, we got it. We got this like moment, you know? Well, there's like a, like a subliminal type of like grammar issue going on. Um, and I think I talked about this a little bit last week, but it's just like, I think that one of the, um, uh, like on the level of language and on the level of English, what reality television has done and like Andy Cohen has done is he's made the word reality into an adjective instead of a noun. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like he's made it something that, um, that, 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 that can float. He's made it like into a floating signifier instead of something that simply describes like, I mean, I don't like, like, I mean, we're not, this is not the episode where we're going to talk about like the meaning of reality, but you know what I mean? But like, but like, this is not like, you know, I wake up, I brush my teeth. I like roll my eyes on my boyfriend. I eat breakfast, like whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and I, but, but I think that like there are these moments where there's this crazy tension, like with Scary Island, when they, this is too real, you know what I mean? Or even in the latest season where Ramona's having that birthday party and gets mad at Leah, turn the cameras off, 
Like, mm-hmm. this is too much. Don't show this. Where there's this tension between reality as a noun and reality as an adjective. Because, I mean, reality as an adjective is, is fake. It's fiction. Or it's constructed. Or it's something other than just, like, the day-to-day, the minute-by-minute. Mm-hmm. Like, almost on the part of, like, the... Um, of, of, of like the charades or the char- quote unquote characters in the show. You know what I mean? Like they're, they themselves are almost being these like adjectival, uh, like, like, like they're letting themselves be like these passive signifiers instead of who they are. So then when they actually are like an embodied reality of something, it, it can't be shown. That's the reality that's not allowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that like, that's what's, like, I was trying to think about, like, why why this episode is, like, stands out so much. Because, like, there's crazy shit that, like, Aviva throws her leg. That's crazy. Like, when, like, when Lisa Rinna in Beverly Hills, like, throws her glass at Kim, like, that's a very classic, like, insane scene. And it's, like, why is this one so much more, has so much more meat to it? And I think it is that there's, like, something that's genuinely, there is some real reality that's being played out. And like, that's why it's like more, that's like why it's like so infamous because it's like, feels like this kind of like this really weird like glimpse into this kind of world. And and I think like watching Roni like in retrospect is always interesting because like the shows now, like all the shows are all so different. I mean, but like, you know, like in Salt Lake City, like you don't have any of that same feeling for those, for the women. Like they're not like, it's re- they're they're all just, they're all performing. Like none of it's, there's none, there's none of that slippage. Like it's always a performance of something. It's like, there's never like the moments where like you catch somebody being like a real person. And I think that's why Alex is such a weird character because she's like just a genuinely like strange person. And like, she's not like a reality star. She's just like a weird woman, like a very weird woman. No, I mean, I will, a digression on Alex, but I never forget the season one. I think it's episode one of New York where she literally goes around the party asking people to get her children into schools, into private schools. <laughs> well, they didn't understand. Like, that's so incredible because it's like, that was really the, the beginning of reality television, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't think people understood what it was, even the people on it. So mm-hmm. I think Alex was probably like, okay, like I'm on this show, might as well get my kids into private schools because it's like, like, as someone who went to private school in, in in New York, like that's what all the parents are doing all the fucking time. They're always going around and being like, so uh, you know the director of Fieldston? Do you, uh, you want to get us an interview at, at Bear Horace Mann or something? Yeah. You know what I mean? Or there's like a whole Chapin Dalton bullshit or whatever. But like, but I think that she like didn't realize or there wasn't the realization that like that uh, like moment, like real moments like that were actually going to be like uh, like jokes of the rich you know, like those were going to be like the funny moments that you saw. She probably was like, this is just what everyone does. Like, whatever. I want my kids to be like well-educated. I think that's such a good point. And I was also thinking about this as in the sort of context of reality TV was new at this point. I mean, it was still a novelty. It was everything on television was not reality. I mean, we had had shows like Survivor um, that were, you know, these competition reality shows that were not quite the same, but this idea of sort of looking into these glorified lives, keeping up with the Kardashians. I mean, all of this, these were all, you know, a few seasons in and they really hadn't caught fire in the way that they have now or sort of have become so embedded into our culture. Um, And, you know, I think that it's, especially looking back at it now in the age of Instagram, 
I have a hard time, you know, connecting with these characters as much because, um, you know, we have all of these other methods and modes of, you know, communicating with these quote unquote celebrities now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to never like ever, I didn't follow like any of the housewives on Instagram till like last year. Like I just never, I was like, I always kept it like on the TV, like on my computer. Like I, I never wanted to like really deviate. Like I never read their blog. You know, I was never, I never like got, I like, I wanted to live in the world that they were like, like right there. You know, I just wanted to like be in there and I didn't want to like have any other outside thing. And that's why I think I developed into such a hardcore fan. Cause I was like really like participating. Now I do follow them more and I've started to like listen to more like, like, you know, trashy podcasts and like do a little more like digging on the internet. And like, it's a totally different experience. I mean, it's fun, but it's like a different, it is a different experience of it. I really love Noelle Delaseps painting. <laughs> like that's the Instagram account I've been like most into. I, I know, think it's kind of good. Yeah, he's like pretty tal talented. He's yeah. so funny though, because he's like, um, I don't know. I feel like uh, like when I was in college, I was like, all I want to do is like date like a hot mustached man who rides a skateboard and paints in LA. But now you're like, my dream boat was Noelle Delaseps. Um, you know, like no longer is it the like Harmony, Kareen and, and co. It's, you know, it's like Noelle Delaseps. He's very barred. He's so barred. I know even especially with the like like billionaire status, he's like yeah. so barred. <laughs> yeah. He dresses like like a dirty skater boy. It's well, really I, you know, I know part of what anyway. I also think is kind of sad in this episode is not the action happening on the boat, but what's happening back in New York. And Luann's date with who she describes as an author and intellectual <laughs> court um who and you know I they don't not. they don't highlight this enough but he brings his self i it would appear self-published book to the day and i you know i was doing this i was googling researching not as much as you know i should have but i i couldn't find what it was the the title was something the shallow and it had is a very scantily clad woman on the cover. And it was very clearly, you know, a grocery aisle, 50 shades of gray porno. Um, and yeah, yes, I, I also yeah. just, there's the scene of them laughing and he looks so terrifying, so terrifying. And He's I just so feel weird. so horrible for Luann, who has been publicly divorced from her husband, which, you know, divorce is horrible as it is. Having to go through it in the middle of, you know, the media spotlight is worse. And just seeing this, you know, beautiful woman who, you know, I mean, she has she has a lot going for her, you know, um, with this mediocre act best I mean I say mediocre and that's a compliment to him um this m just pretty vile man and it's just depressing to me to sort of you know that that's really you know that that to me was really moving I mean 
I also like, <laughs> you know, he they go to the restaurant and he's, he's like, this used to be an opium den. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know that place, Jem, because remember we always walk by it. It's that it's that place right next to Namwa tea parlor you know in that very oh, white yeah yeah, I yeah you know and there's that like when you walk there at night there's always the like like soho clad whatever crowd yeah. lining up for that bar that's like with no name on it i've been to that bar you've been to that bar i think so i don't know no no because some bar that was like i forgot oh so i don't know i always thought i thought that it doesn't even matter but also like luann's into that shit luann like the like the facialist says She's into short, ugly men who she can dominate in bed. Prefer- preferably, they speak French. That you know, frog-like men. And I mean, Chris, my partner, was making, we, we were talking because I was like, who does this guy remind me of? It was like, it's like Woody Harrelson. He's like the ugly version. He's like the short, ugly version of like Woody Harrelson with that like insane frog laugh or whenever he laughs, his like tongue like extends so from mouth. Strange. I remember like I was re-watching this during, I was re-watching running during, during like quarantine and I remember being like, oh my God, that guy. And I was like Googling him and I just, I just actually looked it up. I'm just going to say, this morning, I'm going to read a little bit. Page six tells us about one of the new characters on the upcoming season of Real House of New York City. Court V.W. Felski. Also, his name is spelled C-O-E-R-T-E. And he, it says, the novelist. Um, anyway, according to the 43-year-old MySpace page, yes, you read that right, the young at heart author loves Family Guy, Charlie Rose, and 100 Years of Solitude. His books are about beautiful women, particularly his best known, The Shallow Man, which is about men who date models. Felsky himself loves catwalkers. In addition to being photographed with them as frequently as possible, he planted an item himself a year ago in page six about running into Adriana Lima, who's on the cover of his book, Word. So why is he dating a 40-something divorcee? <laughs> because That's his first new book in eight years comes out in January. <laughs> who's that? Um, I'm forgetting his, uh, Moby. <laughs> Moby, who like lied about like dating Natalie Portman. He's like, we fucked so hard. She was like, I don't, I don't know you. <laughs> I mean, you gotta love the boldness. You gotta love like... A boldness of the bald man. Yeah. <laughs> no, that I is a short man once. I did date a short man once, and it was the lowest <laughs> point psychologically <laughs> I've ever been at. I'm pretty short, you know. Uh, so like, <laughs> but like, but like the, but he, but she, but she. That is a really depressing scene because she's kind of cozying up. Like she kind of. They kind of like do go on a couple dates. And when he tries to kiss her God, in the middle of the restaurant. I mean, <laughs> I mean if anybody listening hasn't watched season three of Real, get I on, know. go now, run. And you know, run, if you have to buy it, it's to worth your dollar ninety nine. Literally buy it. <laughs> So no, I'm actually not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna share how I watch. But you can find it. <laughs> it can be found. <laughs> DM me. Slide um, into the DMs. I had a. I had a. I took a note down from Kelly that was a quote that was not on any of the articles. That was. I have an 18th century <laughs> chandelier on a pulley. <laughs> And they're, they're like, what? There's somebody like, Sonia's like, why is it on a pulley? And she's like, it's just, it's on a pulley. 
so so do we think okay just to get back to to get, to get back to the to the to the interesting intellectual conversation sure. that uh, that we're so good at having um <laughs> so i have i have so i have like two questions the first is like well i so so reality tv and it's something that kind of like sticks with me all the time where it's like reality tv is such a spectacle you know and it's very obvious it's like a very obvious thing it's almost relaxing because like a disney movie you know what's gonna happen and you know it's gonna be resolved so you like watch it when you're doing your dishes or like when you're folding laundry or whatever so i'm, I'm wondering like how like how are we even supposed to like how do you talk about Kelly's psychological breakdown, like kind of like without the lens that they give us. Do you know what I mean? Like, like how do you talk about it? Not as a product of, of Bravo, but like, how do you actually understand it? Like in the cultural context, mm-hmm. which is, I think what we were starting with. And then I guess related to that, I have a direct question for our first guest, Alex, um, which is, you said at the beginning that you think Scary Island, um, which is actually the name that Kelly gives yes. the episode, yes. because she's such a literal person and she was scared. So she, and they were on an island. So she calls it <laughs> Scary Island. Um, you know what I mean? And then we all know it by that name. Um, I'm, I'm wondering why you think that this is like a pivotal uh, housewives moment. So I guess you can choose from those two. I mean, I think vague, those are amazing questions. Maybe not and great questions. I think, <laughs> I think, I think the first we one like Alex. about um, <laughs> looking at her psychological issues is, you know, we still don't have right methodology for examining it. And I think that um, kind of, like like what I said before about reality TV being novel, I don't think people quite knew what they were seeing at that time. And I think again, mm-hmm. that leads into mm-hmm. the second question of why is this episode so iconic is because it is this, as we discussed, this really strange sort of place that we end up in, which is not reality and it's not fiction and it's, you know, really disorienting and we're drawn to that. Um, And, you know, I would say that there are, you know, as I mentioned, you know, the Camille Grammer's dinner party, Beverly Hills season one, that's sort of a similar instance. And then, you know, what even might be a better example is the finale of season one when Kyle and Kim are in the limo and Kim says, you stole my goddamn house. And they go they go after each other. And it's so clear that this is, you know, eons beyond what has been covered on the show. And it is all of this pent up psychological anger that, you know, we don't really have any context for, you know, besides sort of little snippets here and there scattered throughout. And I think this is kind of the same thing in which we get this mm-hmm. glimpse beyond the curtain. Um, almost like, you know, when stage actors forget their lines and you know, it's suspension of disbelief. Um, you know, we, we are sort of yeah. rattled from our state of comfort and understanding um, and we're forced to reckon with this strange reality that's not, that's, you know, as we say, you know, it's not 
it's not fiction, but it's not straight truth. True. Yeah. That is such an incredible point because I feel I felt watching it. Like I remember like, like that feeling of being like. <laughs> but I love the comparison to a stage actor forgetting their lines. Um, I've been I've been reading um, this like French novelist and essayist named Michel Lurie. Um, and he has this book of, I guess you can call them essays, but like, I guess it's like book of fragments called, uh, the ribbon at Olympia's throat, which is about the, um, Edward Manet painting with, with the Olympia. Um, do you guys know it? It's just like a naked woman with the, yeah. anyway, so, but something that, so it's kind of like reflections, fragmentary reflections on the painting, but a lot of what he talks about are kind of like, um, are, are instances of being at the theater and watching these like strange, eerie, um, uncanny, detailed moments of actors forgetting their lines. And like, that's something that he's very drawn to. And his, his essays in a certain way are kind of like dealing with, um, um, with, with you know, with, with modernity, um, and I think that they're dealing with like the aesthetics of modernity, they're kind of like dealing with like how, like how do you interpret daily life or how do you interpret, uh, like how do you interpret your own experiences through the lens of like the cultural moment or whatever. But it's fascinating because something that he does, so he talks about like the moments where the actors forget their lines and to him, they're a little bit uncanny, but I think that they're also a little bit like playful to him. But then there are these moments also where he is totally frightened and disgusted in this very like Sartrean surrealist way of when people he feels are performing in real life. Like he passes this homeless beggar and he's like, and she was so disgusting because I could tell that she was just acting. I could tell that she was just acting her pain. And then he gives her money and she's like, oh my God, thank you so much. And he's like, then I was so mad at myself because I was just performing a type of like chivalry of giving money. So, you know, you know what, do you see what it, like that was kind of like a long tangent, but I think that the, that is like such like, um, like a modern anxiety um, or like a contemporary anxiety of, of the distances or just the relationship between acting in reality and then reality in acting. So that like, I think, yeah, that, that really I'm illuminated so what you just said, because it is like because that. Because I also, in thinking about that painting and also this episode, which I don't think have been compared before. And so I think we should receive sort of a gold star for drawing this comparison. Um, you know, I, I, think back to, you know, the first time I saw the painting, which was in a high school art history class. And, you know, my teacher back then talking about one of the reasons it caused a stir was that it forced the viewer to confront the, to put themselves in the actual room and to feel as though they were commiserating with the prostitute. Um, and it made them think about their own culpability in looking at the image. And I think there's this same sense, you know, of that personal culpability when you see this breakdown of reality versus fiction and you realize that you are, you know, a part of this game and this interaction, even though it's through a screen, um, with these very real people. I, I love that being, right, being culpable because of almost the passivity of seeing it. I mean, another big thing, and this is, you know, this is not my idea, but this is just in, in this book that I've been reading, is that, um, 
this guy Larry is saying that there's like there there's this other tension because Manet was such a realist in his painting, um, so he like wanted to paint her her pubes, <laughs> but the, but at the time you like were not supposed to paint the pubes, you know what I mean? So I think that you could also like relate a moment like that to the to the housewives. Um, I mean I don't want to like stretch it because what you said was like so on point and like didn't need to like stretch anything but I do think that there is you know it's like it's it's the it's it is again the relationship between um between being a realist which is I guess in a very broad sense um we could say that that's what Andy Cohen and Bravo were doing they're trying to be realists about the lives of the crazy psychotic rich and famous rich and almost famous rich and famous adjacent or just the rich um like, and, and the customs of the time, which you could even, you know, you could bring in, you could bring in um, like an Adorno or a Benjamin or whatever, um, or like a Horkheimer to talk about like the, like how, how that can be portrayed via even the technology that they use, like, like via the camera. And we, Gemma and I always talk about how jarring it is to watch the early early seasons because the camera is so different and the way that they film is so different you don't quite understand that it's reality because the way that like they film these days especially with the kardashians where it's all like super closed and kind of all looks like instagram you know they're they're they, you, you film via the vision of making the the way uh the way you see or the way you're showing um like what what viewers are are used to does does that make sense and i think i think that like and you have to have both of those you have to have a like you have to be in a conversation like like as as someone who uh who's making like a product or an art object for for watching like the passivity of watching like a painter like manet or like the producers of real housewives or the kardashians or whatever they're making something that's going to be seen so you need to do it in a way that's gonna make sense aesthetically to people. So they're kind of caught off guard by it. But at the same time, like they have their own agendas of what, of how, of like the politics of how they wanna show it. Yeah, I mean, I was reading a, I was reading a interview with Claire Benson in 2017. And she says like, in the interview, she says like those scenes would never happen now. And she like makes it very clear that like, that was she's kind of, I think she's insinuating like what we're talking about this kind of like she's insinuating a little bit of like the kind of reality tv mechanism that was like operating then and how different it is now and I also was wondering if maybe she was insinuating something about like the portrayal of mental health and like maybe now everything's a little bit more woke and like they would they might not have been so gratuitous with it which I don't think it's true but um she also says like in the interview she says she says like those scenes would never happen now. Michelle Obama would have called Bethany and told her to stop being mean to me. So she clearly <laughs> also is still off her rocker. <laughs> but like but like but like the but also that like that also connects to like her like, you know, her being on the show like the Obama era like she was definitely like um yeah, it was just I mean she was kind of just ranting in the interview, but I do think that it's interesting like she said like those scenes would never happen now and like there is a real distance um, that I think like everyone senses like that because it's because it was filmed so long ago and like it does feel like a totally different like they have a totally different. Goal, I think what's really interesting um, is that she's on the early seasons. uses Michelle Obama of all people in that 
And I mean, there's so much to unpack with that, but you know, what I think is the most, you know, aside from the element of race, which we did, like, we can't even get into. We have to briefly with Al Sharpton. Um, <laughs> we need to, we need to briefly the, talk about Al Sharpton. <laughs> these TV shows have become such a part of our cultural language that she would think that somebody like Michelle Obama would be able to use that as a reference point and be able to speak to it when, you know, I think, and maybe, maybe they had been as culturally about, maybe they were this culturally, culturally relevant back then. I don't think so. You know, I, no, I don't think Bethany or Ramona or any of those people would have thought that, you know, even a local politician would be paying attention to this, let alone first. <laughs> no, it's just psychosis. It's just psychosis. She's, yeah. But I mean, but then again, like in a, what is it? Beginning of season two, like they go to the gay rights march or whatever. And they all think that they like gave it press. But so I cut you off. But you know, they, they and, and I guess eventually like they, you know, when, when on 2015, 2016 with the whole Trump election, Some like they all got really involved in politics. And Carol's the only one who does anything about it. But like, but the thing is about this interview, like in 2017 was like, it's post-Trump, right? So it's like the lingo of like the post-Trump, like, or like during Trump moment, like is all happening. And she says like, she, she also says like, let me find it. She says like the future, she says the future is female. And I have spent the lexicon of my life raising girls and supporting and celebrating women. She's talking about Bethany and she says, whatever she wants with flip for, with philanthropy, I am behind her. And like, so it's like interesting, like, and yeah, the Michelle Obama reference is very much like, you know, I think it's like a nod to like, when they go low, we go high. And like, you know, she's like, I think she's using Michelle Obama as like this way to like justify her being like, I'm smart. Like, I know who Michelle Obama is. And like, she would like me. Like, it's like this kind of like aligning herself with this like kind of elegant grace that Michelle Obama kind of embodied and like, you know, the, and also what liberal is it like, you know, I think it's it's a real like signifier of her trying to be like, and it's interesting like to see Kelly now kind of like operating like that, like that she's part of that camp of, you know, the world is, I mean, it's not like that surprising, but it's like, just kind of fun to like see her talk about Scary Island in 2017, cause it was so long ago. I'm looking up photos of Kelly Benson on now. She looks exactly the same. Well, you know, after she was on the, well, I think it was, oh, right, remember, no, no, it was after her first season, she got into an altercation with a boyfriend where she punched him in the face. She did, she punched him. She got a restraining She order. punched her boyfriend in the face. Yeah, and then she was like, well, I, but she like came up with a whole convoluted story. Um, but I do, I do just want to, sorry, what? So did, um, who's that one, who's that one? woman who's on like a guest she's like a guest she's like or she's on for like a season the one the half asian half jewish woman what's her name who's friends with dorinda oh yeah she like also pushed her husband and got a restraining order um but one thing i was also thinking about is like so when i watched this every time i watch scary island i'm like filled with like and that's kind of like the anxiety that um alex you were talking about like this like i'm like i really want to know like what happened to her and like what is actually like I really want I really want to know her diagnosis like I'm like desperate to like understand what happened and like 
you know, you can come up with a lot of things on your own and stuff, but I was like reading some like of these kind of pages and like there was somebody who like writes a blog who like was a psych major and like writes this funny blog, sort of like, I mean, kind of lame blog, but writes about it and is like, and says like, you know, when she says like, so she says like, every time somebody has a feeling, she goes on this tangent, or like this whole thing about like, free to be you and me 1979. Like she always, she kept saying like 1979. And the person wrote in their blog, they were like, they're, they're, she raged against anyone who was visibly feeling anything, claiming it was so 1979. I confess the amateur shrink in me wonders exactly what happened to Ms. Benzimone during that particular year, as it was an otherwise completely random choice. And like the way it ties, like she like definitely has like a paranoid personality thing and like but then I also was reading like this theory and like it doesn't really like it's like kind of weird but like for some reason I was like so taken by it what's like a theory that Kelly was on meth because like Sonia smelled cat pee when they were on the yacht and like there was no cat and like meth smells has like an ammonia like smell and like you know I don't know I don't really think Kelly was on meth but I like just like these these kind of like grasping at these theories I was like finding it to be like really you like like I was really like fulfilled but also like felt like really manic about it this afternoon I was like I, got, I have to know like what happened like what happened and like drove me crazy that in all her post interviews she said it was a breakthrough not a breakdown and like and even in the show, like there's never any like resolve with it. And it always really made me nervous. Like it really bothered me that there was never any like clear, like that they that, that she wasn't like, she didn't check in anywhere. Like, you know, all that kind of stuff that I like was craving. Like I wanted to see why that happened I, and you I never get that, point. which is that actually is kind of cool in a way. This episode is so enduring. Is that there is no reasonable explanation and there is no explanation at all. None, it's crazy. And even like her saying she has a paranoid personality disorder is like, sure, but that doesn't explain like why she, with the grapes and like the way she taught, like, you know, like there's, there's so much that's left unexplained. And it's like, you know, watching that kind of happen to somebody is like, you know, is just, it's like, it is scary. So you want to understand it as a person. You're like, I need to know like why that happened. Or that's how I always feel about it. I'm like, what happened? Like what actually went down? Yeah. I and I sometimes think that like that's that to me is almost like the trap of the show is is trying to diagnose it head on. You know, like I wonder about that because um because I think that that's like my reaction as well. When you watch it, you're like, what is she on? Or like what is her issue? And like I've said many things that she's on, like even during this time, like many things that she's on or I've diagnosed her but like I, I just I I don't know I just like wonder if there's something beyond it that like one makes it fun to watch or like I wonder if like diagnosing is um I don't know it's like it's almost like giving in to to like to like the ethos or giving into the logic of the show do you know what I mean like I feel like the bit. show like makes me question um like makes me question my own like uh, like need for proof or like need for reason because I think that the show operates like without reason so much of the time mm -hmm. um, that I, it just, it makes you grab or it makes you like trust a lot in reason or like it makes me, for example, like briefly comforted by being like the only reason she was acting like that was because X, Y, or Z instead of just like grappling or, or just like seeing, or there's like how you would read a book 
you know what I mean? Because we're taught like in high school or whatever, like don't diagnose the characters. That's like not, that's not like the work of the characters. You're supposed to think about like why the narrator or whoever would decide that they'd be acting insane. And I, I, I almost, I almost think that that's like, that's just like something that I try to confront a lot with, with these shows. It's just like, how do you, how do you see it? Or like, what's the, like, what's the in-between of the reality that we, that we've been talking about? Like, what's the in-between between just like purely diagnosing it and reading them as if they don't even, they only exist in the imagination of the producers or editors. Can we talk about Alf Rockton? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, please. I mean, we, need to. we need to. We need to close with Al Sharpton. I mean, it's from a few good men. It's Jack Nicholson who says it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the I'm opposite not, of Al Sharpton. I, mean, maybe, I, I am, maybe Al Sharpton has said it in another context. Um, but I just don't. Like, to me, that was. To me, that stands out as one of the craziest lines. I don't want to say the craziest because I mean you rewatch it every time and it's you know it's a new one it, it's a new one each time but to me that it's there's something so disconcerting about that. What's <laughs> insane? Yeah, insane because you're just like first of all you're just like why would you make an Al Sharp like even if it was about Al Sharpton like what do you what are you trying to do with saying that Bethany's like Al Sharpton like what side of Al Sharpton? like. Are you talking about the Al Sharpton who was like the great civil rights leader, or are you talking about the Al Sharpton who was like part of COINTELPRO and who was like like telling the FBI about like Asada Shakur? Are you talking about Al Sharpton like in the Obama era? Like what Al Sharpton are you talking about? Or but then it's also and then you also have the question of just like why do you think Al Sharpton would have said that? And she's like, with your hair back, you look like Al Sharpton, which is just like. Al Sharpton is like a black man who's always had like shortish hair. So it's like, like Bethany would have to do a lot more to her hair than just like put in a ponytail to look like him. You know, you know what I mean? It's just like it's so psychotic. It's like these, 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 these insane like American signifiers. Because Al Sharpton is like very American, but it's it's just it's just insane because you're there's no basis to it. It's empty. I mean, I I just it's yeah, just totally I, empty. I also, you know, yeah. Satchels of Gold is one that isn't talked about a lot, but is also very, it, it just, it doesn't quite. When did she say that? In the beginning, like when she's talking to Bethany and they're getting in the first chef v. cook fight and she's like, she's, and like the, the, <laughs> Bethany like reams her out and then she's like, Satchels of Gold. That's it. Hangs in the air. <laughs> just, it just, it just, it's a, it's a presence just throughout the whole episode. Well, so, I like, mean, Satchels of Gold. We, again, we can't stop without talking about you know I only eat natural foods but I love gummy bears yeah (laughs) and jelly beans Bethany goes those aren't the bears you see in the zoo those aren't gummy bears (laughs) they don't come from the tree (laughs) the greatest the greatest Bethany line too is did she go to she went to did she go to Columbia the country or the school Oh my god! And then we remember later they when they went to Colombia and they they had the boat ride of the that of, of a horror story. <laughs> they almost died. They literally almost died on a boat. And that's that's actually another point. That's that's a crazy part in the um in the in in the show when they in the reunion 
they're like, yeah, like that was like they showed it, but they had to shut the cameras off. And also they're like, that is not close to the reality of the situation. They were like, it was so much worse. Like well, Alex, the could not capture that. Alex McCord says in an interview about Scary Island, she says like, she says like it was way worse in person. And I'm like, how is that possible? I'm like, the producers say like, the producers like in their like this little video, they're like, they're like, it was, cr- it was weirder. And they're like, it was crazier in, per- in person. You like, can tell because you can, you can see like what the food that they're eating because, yeah. because like the, the meat, I mean, you, they have like a four course meal. Mm-hmm. So at least that's like an hour and a half, two hours. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. So they hit dessert and then the dessert is cleared. So this conversation that's like only 15 minutes has literally been going on for like three plus hours. Yeah. Oh, the other, the other, I, the other best, I think this is my, I think this is my favorite <laughs> moment. It's when she's like, and what you did to my friend Gwyneth? She's like, Who is Gwyneth? And she's like, Paltrow. <laughs> Like, 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 it's great because Kelly's being like, yeah, I know Gwyneth Paltrow. And she's also like trying to like, like slander Bethany, like as if Bethany, like, you know, did some, like did something insulting to, um, to Gwyneth Paltrow, which is like, what? That doesn't make any, but like, one of you brought up this point, which was that in this universe, the worst thing you can do is be disloyal to this group and go to the press, the outside. And you know, that's kind of yeah. what yeah. Kelly keeps coming back to um, is it's, it's this almost, it's a, a loyalty regardless of sort of personal animosity to a core group and, you know, anything outside of it is just sacrilege. Um, and that seems to be what is beneath a lot of the digging is this feeling that Bethany has betrayed I guess not only her, but the sort of whole process and the yeah. whole, the whole group. Well, that is kind of like, that is kind of like the worst thing you can do as a housewife. Like how many seasons, especially Beverly Hills are like based around people, like the concept of a leak too. I mean, I, I would love <laughs> to eventually like wax poetic on like a leak, but like, like the, um, but the like, but like, it's like literally like the worst, like, Lisa Vanderpump like leaves the show because Kyle and her have that huge fight about the press like it's about like leaking things to the press and like it is definitely like the worst thing that can happen on the housewives but also it's like definitely it's like that really seems like a manufactured thing because a lot of the times they are putting themselves in all those tablets because like their their people are putting them in there because like when especially those beginning seasons like they were all trying to get famous like they were all trying to build you know build a brand or whatever um but yeah that's the put like the the press obsession with kelly is like very and then and then bethany at one time one point says you put yourself in the paper she's like you got yourself there like i didn't have to do anything like and i think it, she's referring to the i think she's partly referring to like the the i also order, i like, also think that insulting it's her boyfriend. you know a lot of it is i think probably know rivalry in the sense that they all have this sort of equal opportunity to shine on the show and the press is like you know dessert it's extra um and it's unfairly taking advantage of it and control and trying to control the narrative in an in a way that's not on on a level playing field in the sense that they're all beholden to this greater power the power of bravo tv and andy cohen and the story that they want to tell and by going outside of that and going to the press, you are 
you are really, um, you're sabotaging the entire process um, for your own self gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a definitely like a thing that happens all throughout the housewives forever. The, the press is the press is a huge character. <laughs> all right. Well, do we want to wrap up with Alex telling us like your origin story? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, the housewives. I mean, I I think my introduction to the housewives was through Beverly Hills. Um, I grew up in LA, and it was something that. Funnily enough, the entire family wanted to watch. And, you know, it, it, it's this strange concept because my, you know, I think both of my parents have considered themselves intellectuals. I think they are extraordinarily smart. And today, in a million years, they wouldn't watch this show. Mm. And I think it was a product of that time and kind of what we talked about a little bit before, the sort of escapist idea that the world was just so stressful. Um, I actually think my parents were in the midst of divorce at this time as well. Um, and so this was just kind of a mind numbing entertainment experience. Um, and there was a familiarity to it uh, because you saw these people going to all of these different places that, you know, that. You see them go to a doctor and that was the doctor I went to when I was a kid. You know, you see them eating at a restaurant, that's the restaurant that's down the corner from my street. Um, and you really fall into this game um, of, you know, reality TV. And so I really, I'm, I watched Beverly Hills, I watched New York um, and I watch now Salt Lake City, um, but I don't really watch anything else because, I mean, I watched Salt Lake City because the first episode was simply one of the best episodes in the history of Real Housewives, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I went to Bard, so Gemma and I know one another, and so New York also feels a bit familiar, uh, but I don't really watch anymore. more. Um, yeah. I really have been watching you know, during Demix some older episodes and really just kind of, there's a nostalgia about it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, almost, I don't want to give it this much credit, but you know, like something like Harry Potter, um, it's it's a part of the the social conversation. Yeah, you know? definitely. For people our age, um, and especially gay men, um, which we can get into another time is sort of, you know, the appeal for gay men of these women, but another story. And then I would be really good at getting into that. Um, but <laughs> I, no, I mean, it's, it, there's it's the gold mine. Um, but I, I just think it's, it's become so much a part of our culture that we kind of have to recognize it. Um, and I think now is a perfect time for us to sort of take control of the narrative um, and really start to re-examine it from a critical standpoint. Um, because in many ways, it's it's helpful for us to sort of understand what about it really intrigued us, what brought us in, and what sort of kept us hooked for 10 years. 
Um, it's probably 10 years. I, I mean, it's crazy. And I think that there's this notion that it's trash and that it's, you know, lowbrow, which, you know, you can argue that it is. But I think that, you know, I'm really fascinated by our generation's ability to take a critical approach to these I know. Yeah. people and these women and these characters. Um, and so that's what sort of keeps me fascinated. Yeah, same. I, I totally, I totally feel that. People are always like, like older people like are always like when they like Sam's mom found out I watched Housewives and was like, really? But you're so smart. And I was like, exactly, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> say that to me. I'm like, I'm like, I'm actually incredibly stupid. <laughs> I'm just but I mean, I don't even, I'm not saying like, I'm like super, but I just like, but it's like, of course, like, yes, I have a very active mind. Of course I want to fill it with this stuff. Like there's so much there. People, people who write it off as like lowbrow trash. I mean, they're, they're missing the whole point. <laughs> I think it is. I don't know. I mean, I'm just like, it's just, that doesn't, so... not, that doesn't mean it's not interesting. Well, it yeah, I mean, it doesn't even it matter. It is both. Yeah, it's both. It's and that's both. what's beautiful about it. And that's why our generation can handle it. Cause we're like used to that, I feel like. <laughs> well, I just, yeah, I think that it's also just like, there's something about like, cause I guess we're, when are we born 96? Mm-hmm. I don't speak for you, Alex. When are, when are you born 94? So I guess you're a millennial, but- Barely. Barely, but I feel like there's like a whole Gen Z thing of like trash, like the aesthetic of trash. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And I just, I think that that's like, that's part of it. It's like, it's like so lowbrow, it's highbrow or something like that. Like trash is fucking, like the trash can of ideology. Well, that was a lovely conversation. Thank thank you for joining us. Thank you both so much for having me. I am honored to be a part of this show. And, you know, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Um, All right. Well, that was great. Thank you for listening to Money Can't Buy You Class. Keep posted for more deep dives with Alex Weinstock coming up. Um, all right. I'm going to leave this episode with podcast with something I read today. That's a crazy thing, which is some people want to hashtag free gen. Free hashtag gen. Free gen. <laughs> <laughs> free gen. Are you with us? Alex, are you hashtag free gen or hashtag? You know, so- I'm an anti gen and Stuart. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> All right. I don't want to start anything at the end of this here, but you know, I am Team Heather. Oh yeah. Hashtag Heather. You have to say hashtag Heather. Hashtag free Heather. Hashtag (laughs) hashtag reopen beauty labs. (laughs) All righty. Bye. Bye. Bye.